Good morning, church. So in January, the beginning of the year, we talked about this theme of going deeper. It's felt like the Lord is impressing upon our hearts to go deeper individually and collectively, right? And now as we reflect, we somehow got to October. I'm not sure quite how that happened. And uh, in my neighborhood, there's a house that's they love to set up decorations. They do a great job, too, but they're already counting down for Christmas. So they've started the Christmas countdown, and I'm like, wow. It goes by, doesn't it? So one of the challenges, I think, to going deeper is slowing down, is being still. I don't think by nature we're a reflective generation a disciplined generation, a generation that hears the still small voice. And so, you know, this morning, I I love, you know, movies and TV, but I've always been a reader. I love books. And, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes you have a favorite story of, you know, a story you're familiar with and you've read it and you've known it, and then they make a movie and it's kind of a disappointment. Right, the character's not what you thought, or you know, you don't have the freedom that you do in your imagination. So we are, you know, we we like story. And for a long time, you know, it was a it was a storytelling culture, it was an oral culture. And I know a lot of us probably don't remember that. Raphaelez, he probably remembers when he was a boy and everybody sat around near the radio and they told stories, and everybody was excited to hear this story, right? <laughs> I love you, bro. And so here's what I want to do. If you would just bear with me, I want you to take a minute. And, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read a story. It's a true story. It's not a myth. It's not made up. It comes from the scriptures. It's an account taken of Jesus' last hours on earth. And I want us to close our eyes and I want us to imagine ourselves there. I want us to imagine the emotions of the people involved. And so I'm going to begin with about five seconds of uncomfortable silence. And in that moment, I'm going to ask that the Lord would still us, slow us down. Because what we can do now, we have this privilege, we have this opportunity to slow down. To allow that still small voice to speak deeply to each of us. Because week after week, when the pastors stand here, the only power we have is God's spirit and God's word. And so I would pray this morning that you allow that, the presence of God, to change you forever. And so if you just close your eyes and take a few seconds, allow the Lord to help focus your heart, your mind, your thoughts, to cast away the distractions and the fears and the anxieties, the uncertainty, the list of what didn't get done, and to be here now with him alone.
Through the deep shadows which fell from the buildings along the streets, a silent figure glided along, hurrying toward the assembly room where the enemies of Jesus were sitting together waiting. That silent figure was the evil-minded disciple Judas Iscariot, who was hurrying on his way to sell his Lord. Soon the footsteps of Jesus of Judas fell on the floor of the hall, and his knock sounded on the door of the assembly room. In the reply to the call, who is there, came the answer, he for whom you wait, and the door quickly was thrown open, and Judas entered. Now there followed a hasty conversation, some argument, and finally 30 pieces of silver were counted out and handed to Judas. The assembly broke up, and each man then hurried to get a torch and to summon the soldiers who should be on their midnight errand. While this was taking place, Jesus and the 11 disciples had left the room upstairs where they had eaten the last Passover supper together, and they had gone outside the city to a garden across the brook Kidron. Here at the entrance of the garden, Jesus had told eight of the disciples to wait, and then taking with him Peter, James, and John, he had gone into the deeper shadows of the trees to pray. But while Jesus prayed, the disciples fell asleep. They could not understand why he should seem so troubled, and they did not know how to comfort him. And just when all he longed for was to have them near with him, they slept. Three times Jesus went to waken Peter, James, and John, but not once did they offer the comfort he sought. Then while he prayed, in agony, alone. God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen and comfort him. For Jesus knew the sorrow that was soon to come. He knew that Judas, even then, was doing what he was doing. And he knew that his enemies would not cease to torture him until he hanged dead upon that cross. Not only that, but Jesus knew that he must bear the sins of the whole world in order that he would become the savior of men. And because he had a body such as we have, he dreaded to suffer the pain of such a death. He dreaded to be left alone by those whom he loved. So we asked God to take away the suffering from him if such a thing would be possible. But he added, let thy will, not mine, be done. When Jesus had roused the sleeping disciples the third time, he told them to arise, for it was time for them to be going on their way. And they rose up to follow him out of the garden. But as they went toward the entrance, they saw a band of men coming to them, carrying torches, as if they were searching for someone. Jesus walked up to the men and asked, for whom are you seeking? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, answered Jesus, and the men fell backwards. When they rose, Jesus asked a second time whom they were seeking, and again they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Judas, the unfaithful disciple, was with the band of men, and at this he stepped forward and cried, Hail, Master, and kissed Jesus on the cheek. But Jesus knew the evil thought that was in Judas' mind, and he looked sadly into the guilty face of his unfaithful disciple. 
and asked him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas had told the band of men the sign by which they might know whom to take as their prisoner, and that sign was the kiss he had just given to Jesus. And so now the soldiers roughly took hold of Jesus and prepared to lead him away. At this, Peter was thoroughly aroused from his sleep, and drawing a short sword which he carried in his belt, he struck at one of the soldiers and cut off his ear. But Jesus seemed displeased and told Peter to put away his sword. Then he healed the soldier's ear, and Peter, unable to understand now how he might defend his master, sank back into the shadows with the other frightened disciples. The soldiers then bound their prisoner, and the procession started toward the assembly room where the enemies of Jesus were waiting impatiently. Far behind them, Peter followed, wondering what he should do, and yet fearing the soldiers might take him also. First, the soldiers brought Jesus to the house of a man named Annas, who was father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas, and there his trial began. John, one of the disciples, gained admittance at the door, for he was acquainted with the household. And he went in to where Jesus was, but Peter stood outside, for he was a stranger, and the doorkeeper would not let him in. Presently, John spoke to the doorkeeper, and she allowed him to take Peter into the courtyard, for the night was cold. When Peter was inside, a young girl said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? But Peter was afraid. And he said, No. I did not know the man. In the open court, there was a fire burning, and Peter went to warm himself. Around the fire were other men, some of who were servants in the high priest's house. Others there were officers. One of the men turned to Peter and asked, Are you not one of this man's disciples? And yet again, fear crept into Peter's heart, and he replied stoutly, No, I am not. But a soldier standing by who had been in the garden when Jesus was taken had seen Peter use his sword, and he spoke, and he said, I saw you in the garden with him. Peter denied fiercely and pretended that he had, in fact, never known Jesus at all. While this had been happening to Peter out in the high priest's courtyard, the high priest and others had been asking Jesus questions about his teaching and had been treating him shamefully. Then the enemies of Jesus led their prisoner out of the high priest's house. And as he passed by, he looked sadly upon Peter. And at this, Peter remembered how Jesus had told him that before the return of another day, he would three times deny that he had ever known the Lord. At this, tears filled up Peter's eyes. And he turned blindly away from the fire. And he rushed out of the door to weep bitterly. He saw himself no longer a true man, brave and ready to help the work of his master, but now a coward, ashamed to own that he had once proudly followed the innocent man who now stood bound in chains and condemned to die. Lord, right now, let this story not be familiar to us. Let it be fresh and let it be new. And let us recognize what Jesus went through that we could be set free 
that we could be restored to relationship with him. And Father, let us now be honest enough to ask ourselves, how is it that we deny you? How is it, Lord, that we betray you? And let us turn away from those things and back to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Judas betrayed Jesus and Peter denied Jesus. And I would say those are two pretty big mess-ups. And you know, people that don't read the Bible have this idea that the folks in the Bible have it all together. And the folks in the Bible, in fact, the heroes of the Bible notoriously do not have it all together. And so Peter and Judas both failed spectacularly. We have a saying around here that we like to repeat, that our past, that your past, will not get in the way of what God has for you. It won't get in the way of what he has for you in your life for you, and it won't get in the way of what he wants to do through you. Your past won't get in the way. And I know you're hearing people like, well, you know, my past, you know, my past, you don't understand. We're going to look at King David, who was known after a man, a man after God's own heart. That's the title of the message. After God's own heart. David failed spectacularly. Peter failed spectacularly. Judas failed spectacularly. Yet their stories end differently. See, it's not our past, it's our pride. And so this morning, whether you've been here a thousand times or whether this is your very first time, I pray that you treat it like the very first time because we're going to begin at the beginning and we're going to give each one of us space to do what we need to do. See, Judas' story ended. Judas' Judas' death, it was graphic. The Bible tells us the story. It doesn't end well. In Matthew, it says he, he hung himself. In Acts, Luke writes that he, his, his body burst open into a field. There's a little bit of Bible trivia. Sometimes people list that as an inconsistency. Well, Matthew says one thing, Luke says another, and it's actually a pretty graphic account. But Matthew says how he died, which is he hung himself, and Luke is explaining what happened to his corpse when it fell out from the tree of the branch, and he fell in the field, and again, graphic. Not a pretty end. The point is, it was self-inflicted. Judas had a regret, but it wasn't a repentance. Judas felt bad about something, but it wasn't quite where it needed to be. See, in fact, you know, as a, as a point of reference, you know, as a little bit of Bible trivia, but when stories are told exactly the same way, that's usually a sign that people made it up. You know, when I used to be a police officer years ago, and, you know, two people, you have to separate them, and if something happened and they both tell you the exact same story with the exact same details, it was rehearsed because nobody repeats stories like that. What happens is you recount different parts of the story. So places like this where scripture explains things like that actually, again, indicate the honesty of the, of the account. I digress. Judas came to a certain kind of end. Peter, however, his story ends differently, doesn't it? 
Peter, who after his embarrassing mistake, who after Peter also wept bitterly, felt like a failure. Maybe you're hearing like, after all Jesus has done for me, after all I've seen him do, how could I now, you know, have done what I've done? How could I have denied him? How could I have walked away? Maybe you're, maybe this is your first time back. I don't know. Peter couldn't wait to get to Jesus. He jumped out of a boat and started swimming. He didn't want to get to shore because he just wanted to get to Jesus. When we mess up, oh, that we would have the heart of Peter. Just the desire to get to our Lord. And what happens? What happens? Peter messed up spectacularly. You think Jesus would be like, you're my best friend. You're my best friend. I was in the garden. I was, I was crying and I was praying and you were sleeping. You think you would have been like, at my darkest, you denied you even knew me. No, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks each of us that same question. And when Peter says yes, you know what his response is? Then take care of the people who need to be taken care of. If you love me, then take care of the people that I love. Essentially, if you say you love me, I'm giving you a chance to show it. It doesn't matter how your story began, Peter. It matters how it ends. Peter was not only restored, he was not only forgiven, he was given a ministry. And tradition tells us, we don't know for sure, but tradition tells us that when Peter was to be executed by crucifixion, his only request was that you crucify me upside down because I don't deserve to die in the same manner as my Lord. See, Peter and Judas both felt bad. But only one of them knew what true repentance was. So as we ponder this story, this actual account of Jesus' last few hours on earth before his resurrection, I want us to stop and ask this question. How have you betrayed him? How have I betrayed him? You know, and I thought of, of this idea of, of going deeper, and I thought of... What is it, you know, Lord, you know, usually my prayer is, you know, what do we need to hear as your, as your people, as your church? And, you know, what do I need to hear? This idea of going deeper. And I'm just reminded of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so I want to read that to you, because if we're talking about going deeper, this is where it begins. This is the start. In fact, if you don't get this, all you get is religion. All you get is people who seemingly brush, brush up on the outside, but whose hearts remain far from God. See, we must walk in obedience and repentance if we want to walk in power and joy and victory. We say, I love you, Jesus. I just don't want to do what you say or do what you do. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I am, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. And with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him to the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. With these words, Jesus begins his ministry. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven that we all long for. That upside down kingdom. That kingdom that God will usher in someday fully has begun now. That we can live in relationship with Jesus that he can fill us with his spirit, that we can have a joy and a peace that's unspeakable, that's unimaginable. And the entrance is to repent and believe. The word repent indicates a turning away, a change, a desire to be different. And I think with, with repentance, we have to ask the question, we have to be honest. Do we really want to be different? You know, I ask that question a lot. I ask it to myself. I ask it when I preach at Teen Challenge, and I ask it here now. Because the gospel is about freedom from self. Repentance is turning away from me building my kingdom, from me being God, to building his kingdom and letting him be God. I think what we want to do is I, I want to say I love God. I want to say I'm going to build his kingdom and I'm going to keep building mine. Let that never be the case because my kingdom and your kingdom won't last. They're frail and they're faulty and they don't fulfill and they're temporary and they crumble and they're idols. Repent and believe the good news. Turn away and trust me. Jesus is saying, everything you think will fill you won't. If you live and you get everything the world has to offer, everything, but you don't have me, you lose. You have nothing at all. You've lost it all. Do you believe that? 
See, the difference in Judas' life and Peter's life was repentance. You know, you look at King David and you say, you see David's, David just didn't like, you know, mess up a little bit, right? It wasn't just like, I mean, it was a disaster. Like, David, seriously, quit while you're ahead. So many chances to stop the unfolding destruction. How many lives were ruined? And yet he's a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Because David knew what a lot of us don't seem to know. See, a lot of us seem to understand that when we sin, that maybe that'll make us feel bad, that, you know, we don't like what happens when we sin. Maybe we get in trouble. Maybe people look at us differently. Maybe we get ourselves in, you know, a situation. And so we understand what it's like to feel bad for the effects of our sin, I just wonder if we've ever considered if we feel bad that we sinned against a holy God. Not how it made us look. Judas cared how it made him look. Here's what Paul writes about true repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Some translations say repentance that leads to life. Godly sorrow. The kind of sorrow that Peter had. The kind of sorrow that David had. The kind of sorrow that each of us are invited to have. Because he's faithful. And he'll forgive us. And he'll work in us. And he'll keep his promises. But we can't live in denial. We can't continue to hold on to the things he wants us to let go of. You know, we're going to have an opportunity at the end of the service today. You know, we're we're not going to get dismissed. We're going to have a time of, where the altar's open, of worship and prayer and And I wish everybody's going to be as excited to get to the altar as they are to get to the coffee and snack. Because we can make space for you to slow down. We can make space for you to repent. But that's between you and the Lord. You decide whether you leave this place the same way you came in this morning. And I pray from my heart of hearts as somebody who's seen firsthand the destruction that my sin caused to those I love, I pray that today be the day that you give it to him, that you surrender. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. People ask me, when I feel conviction, how do I know if it's the Lord or the enemy? And I'll say, well, what are you feeling conviction towards? Towards what end? Do you sit in a room and say, I'm a failure. I'm never going to be able to do it. You know, I'm a mess. And and you're in guilt and shame. And the enemy's just got, got you frozen in your past. That's the enemy. If you recognize, man, you know, I want to learn from that. 
And with God's help, I'm never going to be there again. I want to be different. And it's impossible. But you, you know, you read this, you say, I don't know, this is, this is tough. No, it's not tough. This is impossible. But with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the prayers and the encouragement of the people of God, through God, it's all possible. But we got to believe. New Living Translation of that, of that scripture. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and it results in salvation. The reason Jesus begins his ministry, he starts it with the words, repent and believe. Means turn away from the life you're living, from the allegiance to yourself, from the kingdom you're building, and build mine. Trust me enough to follow me. You decide. I decide what that looks like. Churches are filled with people who proclaim the name of Jesus and they've never followed him a day in their life. Jesus wants followers, not people who can answer the right questions at Bible trivia. Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, David knew true repentance. He was described, again, a man after God's own heart. I want us all to be people after God's own heart. I say a lot that what I pray is, God, give me wisdom, give me godly wisdom for any decisions I have to make. And Lord, would you give me a heart like Jesus so that everybody I see, I see them through the eyes of Christ. And I love them the way Christ loves them. Because there is no group of people, there is no human being ever born or to be born that was not made in the image of Christ with the potential of the fruit of the Spirit to be made manifest in their life. See, this begins with an understanding and a decision to a true repentance. True repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of mind, that leads to a change of action. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's a renewal. It begins in your heart. As you submit yourself to the Spirit of God, it becomes manifest in your life. But it's not something that just happens by default. Our defaults are all messed up. We're a slave to our defaults. I had a friend of mine a couple years ago sent me a book just because they thought it was funny. And the title of the book was The Christian Zombie Slayer's Handbook. The Christian Zombie Slayer's Handbook. I know a lot about zombies. There are rules. There are rules. There are certain characteristics Zombies don't run fast. Let me just throw that out there. So if you watch a movie and they're running fast, it's not zombies, they're just monsters. There are very specific zombie rules. I digress. So I opened the book. You know, I saw thumbing through it. I thumbing through it. It's kind of an interesting thing. But does anyone know what makes one a zombie? Does anyone know what a zombie is? It's something that should be dead, but it seems to keep coming back up. It's the undead back to life. It's like a robotic response. No brains. No real options, just stuck on stupid. 
programmed to do one thing, fulfill the flesh, its basic desire, no other real purpose. Anyone identify with that? Maybe feel like Paul in Romans when he says this, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I love, I love reading this scripture. I love sharing this scripture with, with people who don't believe because everybody can identify with what Paul's saying here. But man, I, you know, I want to be different. Maybe they're not Christians, maybe they don't, but there's just something like, I, you know, I know I got to change that, but I'm, it's like I'm stuck. It's like every time I think I made progress, the, the zombie rises, the dead man comes up again. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Cliff notes, that's the difference maker. That's the difference maker in Peter's life. He knew who Jesus was. That's the difference in David's life. He knew the heart of God. It can be the difference in our life if we allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts. Not just to be words that go in our mind, in our head, but that, that would convict, that would challenge, that would encourage, that would give life. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I know what's good. I love what's good, like David, right? I love the law of God. It nourishes me. Why? Because if you trust, if you recognize God is good, he's a good father, he's a perfect father, he wants what's best for you, he wants you to flourish, if you really believed that, then of course you would do what he said. And so we don't do what, we, what, what, what he says, what we're really saying is, I don't really trust that you have my best interests at heart. Maybe we don't think of it like that, but really that's what it is. Because in any situation, if we were sure this is the best thing to do, we would do it. And therein lies the problem. Jesus sometimes has our obedience, but what he wants is our heart. And so Paul says, I see another law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind. It's making me a prisoner of the law of sin working within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I'm sure that's what Judas thought as he was putting the rope over the tree. I'm certain, I'm certain that's what a lot of people think when they're like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I'm done trying. I'm exhausted. It's what Paul feels right here. It's what Peter felt too. It's what David felt. But they didn't remain there because they knew who God was. They knew and they believed in the promises of Jesus. And so Paul knows the answer to the question, who will rescue me from this body that, will, that is subject to death, is praise be to God for Jesus Christ. See, to a large degree, we get to determine how our story ends or how God will work in us to end our story. But we got to recognize that our default programming is wrong. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
See, I think if we're really honest, if I'm really honest with myself, sometimes I just love my sin more than Jesus. And oh, that he would take that from me and you. See, we say we love God. We believe that we love God. We know it's right, but it's so easy to do the wrong thing and so hard to do the right thing. See, we know things weren't always this way, but we inherited a sin disease created in God's image to be in relationship with him and to do his work. That's what we were created for. That's why when Paul says, how could him who sent his only son, how could he not also give you all things? How could the God who sent his son to die, how could that God not want in every situation what's best for you so you flourish and do well? Christ came to reverse the curse. He came to set us free. The freedom comes from belonging to Christ from our identity being in him. See, Paul knew he belonged to Christ. David knew he was the Lord's anointed. Peter knew he needed to get back to Jesus, and Jesus would lovingly restore him. See, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any person belongs to Christ, do you belong to Jesus? Are you his? He says, my sheep know my voice. Do you hear the still small voice? Do you slow down long enough to let him speak to you? If any person is in Christ, they are a new person. Their old life is gone. And they've begun a new life. See, the good news is that God knows us and he sees it and he loves us so much that he's provided treatment. We need to know the sickness of sin. We need to know the antidote. The spirit of God. Repent and believe. Trust him. Jesus is the cure. So as I thought about what I wanted to share this morning, the first thought was, what do I want? What, what do we want as we go deeper? We gotta slow down so we can become people after God's own heart. Not religious people, not Bible experts. Those things are Bible experts, good. And I think many of us want that. But we look at our lives and we feel like we don't measure up because our past is a little too dark. I think if you compare yourself to Paul or David, and generally comparison's not a good idea, but just in case you think God can't redeem your mistakes. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has set out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people. In Acts 13, it says, after he had removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had also testified and said, and listen, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. See, if we like the idea of being a person after God's own heart, 
then we got to do God's will. We got to submit to the will of the Father like Jesus did. We got to recognize the forgiveness of the Savior like Paul did. We got to run to him as soon as we mess up like Peter did. And we're going to give you that opportunity now. Because see, the difference between the religious people and the Pharisees wasn't their knowledge. It was their heart. It was their pride and their ego. And so if you leave here the same way, if you leave here holding on to the same things, it's because of your pride and it's because of your ego. And as the worship team makes their way up here, And as they play, the altars will be open. You can come and pray by yourself. There'll be people to pray with you. And then when Christina's finished, she's going to slowly exit the stage. The lights will stay off. The altars will stay open. And if you want to leave, you can slowly make your way without disturbing everybody out to the gym. But I would pray. I would strongly urge you do business with Jesus this morning. To allow God, that still small voice, to speak to you. See, David's life was messy. The chain reference Bible says no Bible character more fully illustrates the moral range of human nature than David. He was a shepherd, he was a hunter. He was a warrior, he was a general, he was a king, he was a poet. He was a champion and an outlaw and a musician and a prophet. He was a worship leader and an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a brother, a husband, a son, a parent, a leader, a hero, a builder. He was an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And none of that matters as much as David, the man after God's own heart. I love you, I really do, but God loves you that much more. And I pray this morning that you go deeper with him, that you take this opportunity to be still and allow the spirit of God to speak deeply into your life.